Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, hello, it's time for the news. And with us today, Tom Breen, managing editor for the New Haven Independent, Tanisha Dugan, a director, producer, and arts consultant, Sam Haddleman, works in music public relations and hosts The Sam Haddleman Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Now, what are we going to talk about, you ask? Well, Wordle is a very young game that seems to have at least temporarily overtaken the universe. We will talk about what that means and why that is and try to say smart things about Wordle. Uh, and then we'll move. If we have time, we will talk uh, about Weedle. Uh, Weedle is not like Wordle. Weedle is a game where you're living in Santa Monica and you've been canceled. And for some reason, you participate in a, another profile about yourself and you make things worse. Uh, that is, of course, the story of Joss Whedon. We're not sure we're going to have time for this because we also, I'm very eager to talk uh, about not Wordle, not Weedle, uh, but about the hurly-burly that is Macbeth. Uh, the tragedy of Macbeth as, as refilmed by Joel Cohen, he of the Cohen brothers, uh, starring Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, uh, and a very interesting supporting cast. Lots to say about that, I think, uh, particularly with this really great panel. But first, we must begin. We must begin with Wordle. Um, I'm assuming most people know. I'm assuming everybody knows what Wordle is, but just in case you don't, I mean, I guess it's a grid of 25 squares. Somewhere in there is a five-letter word that you have to uh, pick out uh, line by line by line, starting with just a wild guess at the beginning uh, and then using the information that you get to improve the quality of your guesses. I think that pretty well describes it. Um, and then people like to uh, share their results on Twitter and other kinds of social medias. Uh, and then other people get annoyed because they don't like seeing all these green squares in their Twitter feed because they don't care about Wordle. And even if they did care about Wordle, they don't care how you did it in Wordle. So I think I've described it uh, relatively accurately. I, I don't know. Tom Breen, get us going on this. I mean, this you, nobody ever heard of Wordle before Christmas. <laughs> and somehow or other, so, it really so, has flowered. Some, some of us, uh, present company included, hadn't heard of Wordle before uh, this week. So I appreciate the opportunity to fall down that rabbit hole. And I hate to start off, Colin, with a correction, but I believe there are... 30 squares there, in the right. Wordle grid and not just 25. And I bring that up because part of the kind of mystifying and simple and pared down charm of it is, I mean, so you get six tries to spell a five letter word. Why you get six tries and not five tries? Is there is there some big reason why that? Who knows? But I find it kind of delightful, that slight asymmetry. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very simple and elegant board. It is one that imposes a heck of a lot of self-control, not because of the player, but because the game is only available to play once per day. Uh, and it's... You know, for, for anyone who loves passing the time thinking about words and letters, which, you know, crosswords are a phenomenally popular and fun thing to do, um, Wordle is the maybe easiest version of that. And I don't mean easy in a bad way. I just mean it's fun and simple to do. Right. I mean, Tanisha, that's, this is one of the theories about Wordle, right? Everybody's kind of stressed out. We're probably too stressed out to undertake some, you know, some new allegedly fun thing that's time-consuming and head-scratching and stuff like that. I mean, Wordle kind of meets us 
halfway out there in the in the digiverse. But uh, just give me your overall take on Wordle. Well, I, like Tom, had never heard of it until this week um, and just played my first game today. Um, and for those who don't know Wordle until today and then go to the app store to pick it up, I don't, it's it's not an app. Is it an app? I don't Is think it's an app. No, I think you just go to the site. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Because I was like, oh, it's it's an app. Um, and it was not the game that I had been reading about. Um, but I think, you know, there is something really lovely about the forced restraint of not being able to binge something in this time. And so I actually like that. Um, and it's fun. I mean, I'll pick a crossword any day, you know. But but it but it's it's a cute thing. I have no idea why it's taken people's uh imaginations by storm and quite the way it seems to but uh i i guess i'm i'm an outlier in many ways <laughs> well i think also tanisha there's the way sense in which you know there's a lot of guesswork involved if you get it in in two lines i mean par i think is four you know i mean if you get it in four four tries uh that that's par uh if you get it in two tries you had a really really lucky guess and there's a way in which being some kind of savant you know about lexicography or something it doesn't really help you all that much you're everybody's more or less if you have sort of an eighth grade vocabulary <laughs> and, and and you know relative powers of concentration you're pretty much qualified to play wordle right i think so although i count myself as a linguistic genius so <laughs> the fact that the first time i did this i figured out in three tries i feel like you know i am at the top of the wordle mountain but i think you're right i think it is such an easy threshold it is so low commitment and it does feel a little bit like a a test of your in intelligence in a, in a in a way that doesn't feel uh, offensive or too much um, and I suspect that may be part of it too right so it's browser based uh, it's free uh, there's no ads on it uh, and it drops only once a day there's only one game available per day and Sam you and I are think having sort of similar experiences with this which is you know in many parts of the country right now it's very cold and you're lying under the covers and it's warm under the covers and you don't really want to get up yet. Uh, and on the other hand, you really do have to get up. So you can either play Wordle or try to get the other person in the bed to make sexy time with you. Either way, you get about an extra four minutes, right? So uh, just kidding, sort of. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's that. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that just as a sort of stalling me measure about beginning our difficult and complicated and freezing days, we're playing Wordle. Um, I think I've always kind of had an affinity for being stressed out. Um, even like when I'm not working, I do things that stress me out. Like I'm arguing with people on the internet about buying records, playing Call of Duty. And Wordle seems to be like the healthiest stressful thing I do in my day. And I think waking up and doing a Wordle, I've always really admired like old people who do crosswords every day. I've always thought that was so cool. Like I don't have the patience for it or like I don't know where to buy a newspaper. But I think it's really like I feel like it's like that methodology just applied to people under the age of 30 and or Colin. And I do like that. Uh, um, I do like that. It's free. It's ad free. It's not owned by Meta. It's like I think that's why it's catching fire is because truly anybody can do it. And there's no objective other than like having fun or stressing yourself out. Like I'm talking to like my friends about this. Like it's a football game. Right. I mean, I would say with my college friend, uh, Scott, uh, who particularly if he does well on Wordle, 
texts me his results at six o'clock in the morning uh, minimum. But, you know, we're at an age where we're we're at 67. You know, if we can keep food in our mouths, we're pretty excited. You know, we can cut our own meat, whatever. Uh, so if you can do Wordle, that makes you feel pretty good, too. Tanisha, I feel like you were about to say something. No, I, I was I was chuckling at uh, this sort of conversation around who the age group that's playing Wordle uh, and also your <laughs> your joke about not being able to keep food in your mouth because in my mind, sixty seven is young, but the times we live in. Well, it's, it's the right <laughs> age. It's the right age to play Macbeth, apparently. But anyway, that's that's in the next <laughs> that's in the next segment. But yet, Tom, there is something about the social nature of the game, right? I mean, there's like a great big huge green share button, you know, and, and it really. There's some way in which it's inviting us to have some kind of limited, I don't know, confraternity with others. Yeah, I I like that. You know, I read a few interviews with the the founder, the developer of Wordle, who very deliberately decided to allow people to share their scores, but did not include a link to the website in those shares so that people were not fanatically going to the site over and over again and falling down that rabbit hole of Internet sensations. But I do I love to I've been thinking a lot about the differences and similarities between uh, crossword puzzles and uh, and Wordle as we prepare for the show. And I don't know if anyone read that a really fascinating Anna Shackman piece in The New Yorker in late December about her obsession with crossword puzzles and also her teenage anorexia and a conversation for a different show. But she drew a lot of comparisons uh, between the rigid self-control, the intellectual kind of strength, and also just the absolute self-destruction of her obsessions with both. And I think there's something very gentle and forgiving about where you get six tries to try to find one word as opposed to one try to find or whatever it is in a crossword puzzle. I don't know. I like how gentle it is. Right. I, I do feel, for example, Irene Papoulis, one of the founding nose panelists, she does the New York Times crossword puzzle, and she often is on social media talking about, you know, how she can finish the whole Sunday one or something. And I, I sort of usually give up after about 20 minutes. So I, I, I feel a little bit punished by, by all of that. Um, well, I mean, I think maybe unless anybody has anything else that they're they're dying to say about Wordle, um, I, I will just say this: it is kind of the macarena of phone games. It's easy to learn uh, and, and kind of fun, and it's going to be over by April tops. Did, uh, did, you, did you guys like the macarena? Was that something that you guys enjoyed? Did you did you like doing that in public? Like, I I don't know when you said when you said that earlier, I was like, what? Is this something I like missed? I didn't like doing it, but people really liked doing the macarena. It was like an incredibly popular thing, you know, and. And like, you know, a big even at like the national political conventions, which are get very boring, they would pan the crowd and people would be doing the Macarena. You know, I mean, the I mean, Macarena is like the wobble. It's like the electric slide. I mean, you yeah, know, it has yeah. an appropriate place to fill time to make everybody sort of gather together. And I suspect that is what Wordle is doing, too. So I love that uh, that that analogy. I thought it was hilarious. For the record, I hate share buttons. Maybe I'm a curmudgeon, <laughs> but I don't want to share with you how quickly I did my Wordle or whether or not I finished the crossword or whether or not I ran today or what have or, you. Or, or, what, you, or what you're planning to say on the nose. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of exactly. an that's sort of an inside like sort of an inside joke, but we usually were emailing back and forth. And Tanisha is noticeably reticent about sort of sharing with us. Uh, although this week you <laughs> this week you kind of vomited up uh, quite a bit more than usual because usually we I mean are, we you guys in. were so active, I felt like it, yeah. it would be rude yeah. if I wasn't. 
All right. Colin, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that vomit is a five-letter word. So maybe tomorrow on Word Oak will be. Yeah. One thing I'll say, I would say, if you're you're reading articles about what the best strategy is and what the best (laughs) first word to, you know, I'm talking to you, Scott Sherman, right? I'm talking to you, Scott Sherman. You're a nerd. And not only that, but it's just, this is a dumb game. You shouldn't be like reading stuff to get better at it. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, man. I, I think about that stuff all the time. I'm like, oh, man, how many vowels can I use? How, and also, like, I'm the complete opposite. I want to show everyone, like, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Like, I'm not bad. Like, I want to share with people. Like, hey, I think about it. Like, I think about it way too much for people to not know how good I or how average I am at it. Right. <laughs> So, well, anyway, there's there are a lot of ethical questions, including do you share all of your Wordle? If, like, if you're going to share the time you got it in two lines, do you share it when you just totally crashed and burned? You know, all this kind of stuff. There are some major ethical questions here. But speaking of ethical questions, I think we can squeeze this in. Although, I have to say, I don't think anybody in the panel was dying to talk about this. But uh, the cover story in New York Magazine, which is also up on, I think, the Vulture site right now, and is really, really being talked about a lot among a certain group of cultural, pop cultural cognoscenti, uh, is an article uh, about um, uh, Joss Whedon. He of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the Marvel Avengers movies and a whole bunch of other stuff, including Firefly, a much missed by me, very briefly glowing like a little firefly in the dark sci-fi series that you should go and watch, even though Joss Whedon is apparently a really terrible person. Anyway, uh, he's already been canceled for just horrible stuff that he was doing with his actors and Affairs he was having on movie sets and in the in the offices of studios, sometimes with a third party president trying to get their work done, apparently, while he's having an affair on the floor with somebody. Uh, <laughs> and he's already basically canceled. Uh, he's not getting work anymore. They took one of his own franchises away from him, something called the Nevers, and took his name off it even. Um, but for some reason or other, he thought it would be a good idea to give an interview uh, to Lila Shapiro, who I would like to point out has been on this show and wrote this like four or 5,000 word massive piece on Joss Whedon, in which he attempts to correct the record about himself. But Sam somehow makes things immensely worse than if he had just sat there with duct tape over his mouth for her her entire visit. Yeah, it was like, of course, I was thinking about, you know, the big body of the piece and the thoughts behind the piece. But I was also thinking, like, does his publicist have a drinking problem? Like, how did this happen? Who had this thought? Was it Joss who was like, huh, you know what I should do today? Sounds stupid publicly. Like, I, I don't understand, like, how this even came together. Like, what was the thought process behind it? But I did think it was interesting that, like, someone, I don't think that there's been many moments where people have written about people in power who have had abuses like this, the way that the author wrote about it. And the response to it was kind of surprising. You know, comic book fans aren't exactly the most, uh, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Whoa. Politically friendly. Yeah, yeah. They're usually like a couple guys in the basement on chat room saying horrible things about Captain Marvel. But like I went through Twitter last night after reading the piece and all the responses were resoundingly positive against Joss. So I think that we saw real journalism come out in the cause and effect of real journalism. And I guess that's a positive, but I'd really like to never speak about this creep ever again. I, I just have to tell you one quick, uh, not only has Lila Shapiro been on this show, uh, the author of this piece, uh, she was on talking about the movie Eyes Wide Shut, which she watched a lot of times. Uh, <laughs> we were doing a show about Kubrick, but um so we did a show about Joss Whedon years ago with the expectation that Joss Whedon would not be on the show because we were told that he wouldn't be on the show. 
Uh, and then we were told, like, I don't know, I think with fewer than 24 hours to go before uh, airtime, we were told that Joss Whedon would be on the show, but he could not appear for more than, and it was like five minutes and 38 seconds or something. It was like suddenly weirdly constricted amount of time that, you know, anything we wanted to ask Joss Whedon, we were going to have to cram it into this tiny amount of time. Uh, and so we thought, okay, well, that's still pretty good. We'll have him on. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and then he came on and like he was on for like 20 minutes or something. <laughs> it turned out he really did want to talk about all this stuff. And so reading this thing, I was sort of thinking about that day and thinking maybe part of Joss's problem is he doesn't, He's not as reticent as he probably thinks he is or even should be. But, uh, but Tanisha, this is one of the things that I, I don't really know your opinion about, uh, although I, I have some slender uh, sense of what it might be. <laughs> We've talked enough about these kinds of things for you to have, have a probably a very sound guess of where I stand, which is, one, I'm very much like, who cares? Um, I think we're just in like a very stark black and white understanding of humanity, which is just not good for anybody. Um, so like, is has he had creepy moments? Sure. I've never actually met the man to know like where the creep factor lies as it relates to my comfort level with creepiness. Um, did what I read read to me as something like Harvey Weinstein level? Frankly, no. Um, but we all have good and we all have bad and, 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 you know, you know, I hate cancel culture also. So um, I think, you know, forgiveness and, and the ability to uh, shift your ways is much better than go away forever. Uh, and I suspect folks will be watching Avengers and Buffy and the things he's made for a long time. I think the other thing is that the entertainment industry is one in which at, um prickishness, the wordle of the day, uh, is rewarded. And so having, you know, I don't know how you can be a creature of that ecosystem and not take on those habits. Um, so I find it curious and interesting how uh, fervent we are about holding people to account for behavior that is not only acceptable, but expected um, in the entertainment industry. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I well, Tom, I, and I don't want to step on whatever it is you're prepared to say right now. I'm sure you do have something really interesting you want to say. I mean, one of the thoughts that I've had just reading this whole thing is, well, I had two thoughts. One of them is, you know, there's some things that are just hard to clean up. They're just messy. People are messy. I mean, Walt Disney was, in a lot of ways, not a particularly nice person. And there's a lot of ways in which early Disney stuff was culturally imperialist and racist. All kinds of stuff. But people also really just enjoy Disney stuff. And it's kind of hard to take it all away from them based on how awful he may or may not have been. And the other thing I thought is maybe it's good, maybe particularly from a Tom Breen point of view, it's good if Joss Whedon gets told, you know what, you're not going to do any more Marvel movies and we're not going to give you $400 million to make a movie for a really long time because you're a liability and people don't like you. And so he gets involved in some indie projects and, and he gets over the huge depression he's obviously having right now and, you know, makes some smaller films. He's an interesting guy. Maybe he would make a cool movie or two just because he is so canceled. 
Right. Yeah, it's an interesting take at the enforced humility in this industry that certainly does not prioritize humility. Uh, I do. Well, yeah, I, I'm going to mull that over while I very quickly go through uh, what my my prepared comment, which I think is kind of related, which is that I, I think my um, my favorite part of, of reading this piece was thinking about Lila Shapiro as a reporter and the challenges of writing uh, coherently and persuasively about the ongoing Me Too movement. Very briefly, I think what, what Shapiro does really well and what the best kind of long form journalists do is that she demonstrates an expertise in her subject matter. I loved not just her familiarity with Whedon's, you know, filmography and deviography, whatever it is, but also all of the subplots about the feuding between super fans of Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon. It was just fascinating to read about. Um, I loved the intimacy of the portrayal of Whedon, you really got a sense that at least I as a reader was sitting in the room alongside the author and the director as, as he was talking. And I loved her attempt to take this one specific individual example and try to describe it as symptomatic of a broader social movement. But I think therein lies the problem with, with maybe not the best of reporting during Me Too is that not every individual example has to be the par example of, of a movement. And I found the stretching to document every single um, yeah, sometimes abuse, often gender power imbalances in the workplace, but sometimes just, you know, the the way he taps his fingers together, him making out with someone beside someone else, and the real <laughs> reliance on anonymous sources, I found so frustrating and debilitating for a journalist because journalism, the foundation of journalism is uh, people saying accurate things and being held accountable for that. And I found this type way too reliant on anonymous people saying whatever they want. All right. I'm going to wrap it here just because I think there's so much that I want to say and I think that you guys want to say about the tragedy of Macbeth. So the tragedy of Joss Whedon, we know you can read the article if you want. You will be fascinated by one of the women who did uh, identify herself and discuss dating him. She is a an occasional dominatrix and she really liked the movie Dollhouse. And then they apparently entered into a relationship in which she was a doll and he owned her. And that was like sort of how they did things? I yeah, can, can, I, can I make one more note yeah, about yeah. this before we get off? Um, I did think it was interesting how the author used plot points from his work to like lead to him like breadcrumbs. Like he was like, like she would basically outline these big analogies that would be in these shows and movies that basically described him at the point. And I, I thought that that was like a really good writing technique to basically spell out, hey, this guy is a creep and you could know from his work without exactly saying that. Yeah. Buffy's still good, though. All right, so we have to, uh, we're going to be moving on to Shakespeare, and we'll play a little music here to get you into the mood. The girls today in society go for classical poetry. So to win their hearts, you must quote with these Aeschylus and Euripides. But the poet of them all, who will start them simply raven, is the poet people call. The Bard of Stratford-on-Avon Brush up your Shakespeare Start quoting him now Brush up your Shakespeare Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, where the place upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. All right. That is Catherine Hunter as kind of all three of the weird sisters, sometimes thought of, generally thought of as witches, uh, in Macbeth. Uh, It is a remarkable performance and a remarkable use of Catherine Hunter, who, by the way, in uh, the most recent, one of the most recent issues of The New Yorker, attributes that voice that you hear to a lifetime of cigarette smoking. Uh, And uh, she's obviously also had a tremendous amount of sort of physical kind of training. So she gives this kind of Andy Serkis-like performance uh, as uh, as all of the witches and spirits and everything all were kind of rolled into one. Uh, That is part of the tragedy of Macbeth. Obviously, the headline out of this project, it is one of the Coen brothers. Joel, uh, working with his wife, Frances McDormand, uh, and the great Denzel Washington to produce and present, and a lot of also very technically gifted people, which I think our panel is going to want to talk about. But um, So, I don't know. There's obviously a lot of momentum uh, for this project, a lot of buzz building up to it, a lot of interest. So, Tanisha, I'm going to have you get us started here. Uh, just give us your overall reaction. So, I'll start with when I... when we talked about watching this. I was like, Oh God, <laughs> Denzel Washington playing Macbeth. And uh, we had just come off of our, our, uh, our uh, station 11 and my sort of irritation with Shakespeare is sort of uh, a continued go-to um, for uh, theatrical device. So I was sort of like, Oh my, why, why, why? But this movie is stunning. It is so beautiful it is it like the visual art of it is amazing. And to be sort of introduced to the project with Catherine Hunter's uh, Three Witches is just astonishing. I mean, you talked about her physicality. It is so breathtaking um, and and not uh, interpretation. I have seen um, having seen this a few times, both in full productions and in scene work. Um, so it was really just it was really, really beautiful um and stark and spare and theatrical and um and and i and i think it honored both art forms the art form of the theater um as as a craft as a physical craft um and the art form of filmmaking um so i i'll I'll kick us off with that that as irritated and annoyed as i am by the continued presence of willie the shakes uh, I I 
adored this project. All right. So, um, so uh, yeah, I just I think we just kind of go around the table metaphorically. Uh, Tom, how about you? Yeah, I, I too uh, really, really liked it. And I think that maybe to get a little bit into the Cohen brother, brothers e nature of this, what I responded to so much is what I respond a lot to in other Cohen brothers movies that really burrowing down into what Barton Fink calls the life of the mind. It's really bizarre, opaque, unnerving, dreamlike world that is revel revelatory and incredibly self-obsessed, um, but also uh, pointing to towards some something innate, innately human that perhaps more naturalistic depictions of mankind doesn't quite get. Um, I love the contemplation of the persistence of evil in an otherwise meaningless world. So I think Cohen Brothers fans will be very familiar with like Anton Chigurh, the Javier Bardem character, No Country for Old Ben, everything, all the crazy stuff going on in Fargo. I mean, for for movies that are so seemingly devoid of, you know, Hail Caesar, devoid of God, uh, there, you know, there isn't really a God in the Cohen Brothers movies. There, cer there certainly is evil. And I find that juxtaposition a, a really fascinating one. Um, and then also the, I mean, the Cohen Brothers are perhaps the great, you know, postmodern American directors and that they know how to pastiche. They know how to reference the movies they love, the styles they love, the aesthetics they love. Hail Caesar, Big Lebowski, all these stuff are kind of genre works. And here we have a deep dive into a kind of avant-garde European visual aesthetic from the 1920s. There's a lot of references to Carl Dreyer, to Fritz Lang, to Murnau. I mean, it, it really is a throwback of sorts to that spare, as Tanisha was saying, that spare, stark, chiaroscuro of early art house cinema. And I love it. Yeah, it's shot in black and white. We should say it's shot on sound stages. And often uh, give it also a little bit of an Orson Welles uh, look to to some of the scenes. Uh, and yeah, for me, I kept thinking of De Chirico's, uh paintings where they have those sort of colonnades and porticos that really don't seem to go anywhere except into shadow or into light. Uh, and, and this has a, a lot of the feeling uh, of that as well. Uh, and, and so, Sam, uh, yeah, give me uh, your reaction, too. Um, it, when, when I heard this movie was coming out, the first thing I thought of was like English class in high school. Uh, I didn't really love all the things I learned about in high school, but there were some things that like really stuck and it was especially English class. And my English teacher who taught me about Macbeth really made the book like come alive. I can remember being super creeped out by the witches and I, I kind of related that story to most of like the gangster movies I like. I mean, Scarface is just like pretty much Macbeth, uh, with, with just a, a little more powder and guns. Um, but I, when I watched this film, I knew what I was getting into. It's like a black and white A24 film starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand with a Coen brother helming it. I knew what I was getting into. And I was like, please, dear God, make this good. And it was phenomenal. Catherine Hunter scared the living bejesus out of me. Like when you just played that clip, my shoulders went up to my ears uh, because she was just terrifying. And like, it was marvelous. I really loved how Denzel and Francis, their like interactions, though they were kind of brief, they were pretty meaningful, and I loved how it was shot. It kind of reminded me of The Night of the Hunter, which is like a 1959 film that I really enjoy. Um, like most Coen Brothers films, I loved how they casted everyone, and though obviously there weren't, uh, there was a lot of actors and not a lot of screen time, I think they used everyone pretty well, and I truly enjoyed the film. You know, uh, as far as that not a lot of screen time, too, so Tanisha, as a director, um, I mean, 
one of the nice things about Macbeth is it, it actually is kind of quick and punchy in terms of the dialogue. There are a, a, an amazing number of single-syllable words, uh, even in some of the most famous speeches. There's a lot of also cross-cutting, you know, which is tough to do on stage, uh, but uh, fun to do in movies. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a play that you can move along at a pretty fast pace. Even knowing all of that, it's kind of amazing how fast Joel Cohn gets this thing to go without really appearing to lose too much nuance. But what is your what was your take on that? Yeah, you know, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth is Shakespeare's shortest um, drama. Um, and I think Joel does a, a really compelling job. Again, I think this, the the format, oftentimes I'm, I'm unsure about Shakespeare on film, but I think um, Joel's use, you know, you talked about the the transitions, you know, he loves a whiteout in this movie. Um, and those transitions between the scenes are so fluid and so helpful in keeping the tempo um, apace. And I think it's important, you know, for, for a, a plot that's about murder, about war, about, about um, deception, to be able to sort of um, move that, move the piece um, and not have to rely on the set design or the actor's um, uh, delivery to, to really set the, the tone and the tempo for you. I thought it was really well done. I will say, you know, to your point about it being, uh, we see it in black and white. It's actually shot in color. Mm-hmm, um, right. And one of the things that uh, Del Bonnell, the, the cinematographer, director of, um, of uh, photography talks about uh, is, is shooting it in color because there is a nuance of color in color that you can then play with when you turn it to black and white. So there is uh, a depth um, to the black and white that is really um, gorgeous um, as well. You know, I'm thinking about the, this, the second scene with the witches, uh, double, um, double, double toil and trouble. Everyone's, you know, one of those iconic lines. Uh, and and the, the conceit is that uh, Macbeth is in a pool of water that sort of uh, arrives when the witches arrive. And the layering of color of both that pool, but then the apparitions that come inside of the water is something that could appear really flat um, if it wasn't shot in the way it is. So it, it, it's, it, it will surely rack up the awards. I don't know about the performances, but it will surely rack up the awards in, in art direction um, and direction, I'm sure, as the spring uh, rolls around. Well, hopefully we'll have time to talk about the performances, but even before we do, just to give you kind of a sense of how they sound uh, in their roles, this is uh, Lady Macbeth, Francis McNorman, trying to uh, give um, uh, Macbeth, played by Denzel Washington, one of her periodic pep talks about murder. We will proceed no further in this business. He hath honored me of late, and I have bought golden opinions from all sorts of people which would be worn now in their newest gloss. Not cast aside so soon. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since, and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? From this time such I count thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemst the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the poor cat in the adage? Prithee, peace. I dare do all that may become a man, who dares do more is none. What beast was then made to break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you are a man, 
And to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. I have given suck. I know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you had done to this. If we should fail. We fail. But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. I just want to quickly point out from that speech, too, the, the point I was making before, I, I mean, I, I can give you four lines from, from Lady Macbeth where she says, uh, when you durst to do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, uh, you would be so much more the man I have given suck. And no, um, there's a two syllable word in there anywhere. These are all single syllable words. Boom, 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 boom. So, so Tom, what about these performances? Um, I mean, it's you know, you come into these things with the weight of everything else that's ever been done. Um, uh, how do you think the the actors did with this material? I I think that clip was pretty emblematic for me of what I thought Denzel Washington did really well in this, and also what I thought he did not well. Um, and that I guess the not well part first. I thought that many of his his lines just kind of tumbled out of him all at once, at not not at a at a pace that. Um, you know, not that I'm trying to understand or catch every single word, but almost with without adequate inflection, without adequate differentiation, that I just, I felt like the lines, um, obviously he is an immensely talented actor and immensely talented deliverer of speeches. I mean, Malcolm X is perhaps the most, uh, you know, virtuosic deliverer of, you know, delivering speeches in any movie that I can think of. But here I found the words just kind of tumbling out of him. Whereas in that one exasperated prithy piece that we just heard, I felt like you, you heard, you heard everything you had had to hear about the weariness, uh, about the uncertainty, um, yes, about the ambition, and also about his attachment and loyalty to Lady Macbeth. Um, I felt like he was he was fine, um, but he was definitely not the standout. Who, in my you know views, were Catherine Hunter. I loved Corey Hawkins as Macduff. I loved a very small role, but I thought a very impactful one. Moses Ingram as Lady Macduff, and I loved Alex Hassel as Ross, a very Coen Brothers-like character who was oddly kind of serpentine, always kind of smirking, although you can't quite tell if he's laughing at you or laughing with you or not. There's so many great side performances. I thought the two at the center were not the strongest. I, I do. I want to say this one thing, which is that, first of all, I really enjoyed this movie, too. I will come back to it. Um, I think it's fascinating. Um, if you like Macbeth and are going to Macbeth for certain kinds of things, which I kind of do, um, you might not get them here, and that's because there is one major, I would say, almost paradigm shift here, which is that the Macbeths are really intentionally really old. Uh, in real life, Denzel Washington is 67. That's how old I am. Francis McDormand is 64. So, I mean, you know, Corey Hawkins, who who plays Macduff, is 34, I think. You know, and and so it, theoretically, within the world of the movie or within the world of Shakespeare, these people would be more or less contemporaries, but they're not. And it makes them Macbeths into this kind of angry older couple who, you know, in a way, rather than any, I don't know, sort of moral dithering. There's a way in which Macbeth is old and kind of pissed off and passed over for things. And it's pretty easy to tip him into violence because he's already really cranky. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm going to be endorsing Ozark in the C segment. But if you know Ozark, you know, the Macbeths should be the birds, Marty and Wendy, but they're kind of the Snells. And there's this kind of weird old couple live up on the hill 
uh, and don't like anybody and and are really violent. Um, and, and Sam, for me, that was a little bit of a problem. I felt like I was seeing a different kind of story than what I think Macbeth is. But since you've already brought up age on this show, uh, uh, like when the Macbeths are doing their crossword puzzles, I thought that was kind of, you know, I mean, that was very pointed. <laughs> Um, maybe I'm a little biased because I've actually never seen Macbeth in a play. I've never seen Macbeth in a movie. I've only read the book. And when I did read the book, I did imagine Denzel and I mean, I did imagine Macbeth and his wife being a little older. And I feel like that's kind of how modern movies have interpreted it. Someone who's kind of like losing grasp of power and finally gets this moment and it all goes to their head and eventually that head gets cut off. Um, but I did think that Denzel was masterful. Maybe I'm just a sucker for him, but it was like he brought out all the different aspects of his acting that I truly love when he gets these like impassioned rants kind of reminded me of like training day um, when he can be like very stoic, like Malcolm X. I thought that he brought all those elements to the role that made it come alive to me. Like I could see, and I really liked how they kind of paced it. Like at the beginning, he's kind of like normal. He's like kind of chill for like three minutes. And then like 25 minutes later, you slowly see him kind of descent into madness and I really enjoyed seeing that transformation on screen for Denzel. I also thought Frances McDormand did her did her thing. I don't think that she was a standout. I would have liked to see her get a couple more key scenes, um, but I, I thought that she gave great performances. But Tom's right. The side performances were also phenomenal. The dude from Harry Potter, uh, Harry Melling, he was great. Um, Overall, yes. really like the cast. And speaking of Moses Ingram, uh, which Tom did, uh, she is a product of Yale Drama School, as is Frances McDormand, but many decades apart. Again, uh, you also may remember seeing her in The Queen's Gambit, uh, where she plays, I believe, the character Jolene. Uh, but she's, yeah, there's not that much for Lady Macduff to do, but what she does, once again, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think, Tunisia, one one thing that you and I may share is, I want to see Moses Ingram and Corey Hawkins do Macbeth. <laughs> As Lord and Lady Macbeth, that's who I want to see do this. Yeah, I mean, I would love, I would love to see that. And it also, you know, I'm going to backpedal a little bit and and sort of talk about the the performances. And I think that there's something about the language of Shakespeare that Denzel. It just feels like it's been so long since he's been in training that he just doesn't use. And and Corey um, is is just closer to training so so his ability to sort of really work with the language is is much more present um i i will also say i like that the macbeths are older for me it it felt like a metaphor for this time we're in where boomers are sort of like holding on to the world um with everything they've got and there's not a kind of pathway from from the generation currently leading to the one underneath and so that sort of resonated for me in the way that they casted, whether that was intentional or not. I suspect it was really Francis saying, I want, I want to play Lady Macbeth and you're going to dress me in. <laughs> but um, but I think um, I think that the casting allowed for uh, a kind of critical thinking and conversation around how we transfer power, um, how we move our world forward. All right. Um, I could go on and on about this, but we, I think we have to stop. I do think maybe maybe the, the solution is they should do one of those Geico commercials about, you know, how you're turning into your parents and stuff. Uh, you know. <laughs> and, and, and that I way, Corey and, and my crossword. Yeah. Corey and Moses could be there like in an airport or something, killing people. And I don't know. I, I need to I need to storyboard this a little bit, but we have to take a break. So we'll have time to recommend things on the other side. 
And we are back. Uh, time to thank uh, Kat McPaster, the Thane of New Britain, uh, for being our uh, technical uh, p- director, producer, everything like that, uh, and making the whole show hum. Uh, and Jonathan McPants, no uh, additional MC needed, uh, is the producer of this and pretty much all episodes uh, of The No. So thanks to both of you. Uh, we're going to go back over to Sam Hadleman, Tanisha Dugan, and Tom Breen to make some recommendations. Uh, Tanisha, why don't you get us going? Yes. My uh, endorsement is so quaint. Um, I hope it's appreciated. But I'm going to endorse the calla lily, which is a really incredible flower to have in your house this time of year. It's so dark. It's so cold. Um, This little sort of burst of color um, and life in this dead of winter is beautiful. Stu Leonard's has a great selection of them. But also my dear friend Park over at the Floral District often has um, a couple of varieties to pick from. So my endorsement for this week is the calla lily. Oh, it's very sort of Shakespeare sonnet-like somehow. Uh, (laughs) Haiku! There's a through line right there. Okay, so (laughs) Sam Hadleman, what have you got for us? Um, I got Earl Sweatshirt's new album, Sick. Um, phenomenal stuff. It's an album I emailed to Colin at like 8.30 in the morning on like a Friday, <laughs> like, hey, listen to this. Um, it's 24 minutes long. Uh, if you're someone who's looking for something a little more lyrical, a little more experimental, you're kind of tired of either listening to Billy Joel or Megan Trainer or whatever people listen to, uh, <laughs> definitely check out Earl Sweatshirt. Uh, the entire thing is actually mixed by Young Guru, who's Jay-Z's uh, engineer, so it sounds really crisp. Um, yeah, if you're looking for something new. All right. Uh, he did, in fact, email me the album, Earl Sweatshirt is Sick. I haven't gotten to it yet because I'm doing – I love Sam's idea of like what other people are doing. They're listening to Billy Joel uh, and Megan Trainer, and they're doing crossword puzzles. And um, uh, All right. So, uh, and so Tom, Tom Breen, what have you got for us? I've got two great and very different Macbeth movie adaptations. The first is called Throne of Blood. It's from 1957. It's by the great Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. Uh, often thought of as the you know the best adapter of Shakespeare to the screen, and Throne of Blood is thought by many critics as the best Shakespeare adaptation to a movie uh, of all time. It's it's you know takes the medieval Scottish story and puts it in feudal Japan, uh, and it really taps into that that or myth of you know the striving, ambitious, willing to murder anyone, but places in a very specific time and place. And of course, the great Toshiro Mifune, um, you know, everything that I may have wanted from Denzel maybe for a couple of decades ago is is very manifest in Mifune's performance, who's like a caged animal who's been let out for a minute and is sprinting as quickly as he can towards, towards that throne. Uh, the other one is Scotland PA from 2001, which is a, a comedy uh, set in suburban Pennsylvania in the 1970s that follows a couple of you know, uh, fast food workers and stoners uh, who who uh, strive to take over the uh, the fast food restaurant, the kind of or McDonald's that um, 
that uh, is the Kingdom of Scotland, but <laughs> in suburban Scotland. Well, that is certainly something <laughs> I would consider tracking down. I also became aware of just in my research for today's show, a movie that I have not seen and probably will never see uh, called Mickey B. Uh, it is a shot it is Macbeth staged by actual prisoners in Belfast's uh, worst prison, I think. Uh, and so I did find a little trailer, which I might have sent around, but um, it, it looks pretty harrowing. Uh, even, I mean, Macbeth is harrowing enough, right? So, um, yeah, I thought maybe I would uh, endorse, first of all, um, because we were talking about Joss Whedon, uh, don't read the Joss Whedon profile yet, if you haven't, and then watch Firefly, which you can get on Hulu. There's only one season of Firefly, plus a movie called Serenity. It's a, it's a sci-fi western. It has a wonderful cast. It has the things that, if you do like Joss Whedon, if you like the way that he can weave whimsy uh, into what is still basically you know, uh, a, an action and fantasy kind of plot, um, to me, this is the, the best of Whedon. I've, I was always crestfallen that there wasn't more than one season. But the season that's there is really great. And as I say, a really good cast. And then there's the movie Serenity uh, as well. And then uh, today uh, drops the first episode of the fourth season of Ozark. I really do think Ozark is one of the best things uh, that has been done in the kind of streaming era of stuff. Uh, It's on Netflix. uh, And uh, it involves, and you know, even sort of, I mean, there are some really interesting comparisons to Macbeth that you can make. But also, Jason Bateman, I've been thinking, I've been re-watching some of the earlier seasons, uh, and Jason Bateman is a better actor than people think that he is, and in particular, uh, the writers of this thing give his character, Marty Bird, uh, these kinds of speeches to do that that really do require a kind of cadence, uh, a kind of rhythm, uh, and, and watching him a little bit more carefully as uh, you, when you re-watch something, you're a little less obsessed with the plot and what's going to happen next and all this kind of stuff. You can kind of notice a little bit more subtlety of acting. Uh, and and I'm, I'm very struck. I mean, Laura Linney's a terrific performer, too. There's a lot of uh, uh, Jessica Garner, all, all kinds of great people in, in this cast. But, but Bateman, you know, is kind of the heart of it in a lot of ways, even though he's a fairly heartless character. And, and I'm just impressed by his chops. His acting chops are really good. So uh, if you've never seen Ozark, you know, I would just start, start with season one. It'll go fast <laughs> when you start binging. It'll go pretty yep. fast. And I, I'm pretty excited about season four uh, beginning tonight. All right. So um, thanks very much to this wonderful panel, Tanisha Dugan, Sam Hattleman, Tom Breen. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants uh, and Lady Cat McPaster. Uh, and we'll be back next week with a whole bunch of new shows. I'll meet you down on a silo across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. Talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Alderbury, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. Margaret.